Good morning. Please join me in standing for our call to worship this morning. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Father, we welcome you into this place today. I pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to the words that you speak to us through your servant, Pastor Wes. May your name be glorified and honored. In Christ's name, amen.
welcome you to uh, the service of worship today. Those of you who are here in the building, those who are joining us on streaming, we are glad that you are here. And this is a day when we are uh, thinking especially about uh, God's work around the world. And so you'll be hearing more about that through music and uh, spoken word in the coming moments. I do want to give you an opportunity to uh, share a word of greeting with others who are here today. So uh, take a moment, perhaps walk different places in the church, uh, greet folks who you may or may not know as this worship day. Good morning. Our missions moment this morning is brought to you by the Partners at Home Committee. I'm uh, filling in for my wife this morning, Addie, who's the chair of the committee. She's at home with a couple of sick little girls today, so I am filling in in her stead. One part of the Partners at Home Committee Ministry here at church is focused on the needs that exist right here in the community. Um, Partners at Home has been around for quite a while, not always under that name. Um, Partners at Home is a group of, that's dedicated to trying to improve the daily lives of those in need right here in our congregation and also in the community around us. The need is often hard to see because it doesn't always look like this. Need doesn't always look uh, as we might picture it in our minds. And Oftentimes, we find that the busyness of our daily lives get in the way of perhaps um, seeing the need that's right in front of us. It's not an intentional oversight, um, but we, we truly don't see the need that's, that's sometimes all around us. Um, but it's, it's a reality that affects more people near and dear to us than we realize. As a committee, we have recently been restructuring and organizing our efforts to become a more effective and active group. In doing so, we have developed an ambitious ministry called Project Grace, which stands for giving, restoring, advocating, caring, and engaging. Since the introduction of Project Grace in October, we have helped community and church members with food, broken water pipes, heating issues, preparations for winter, vehicle repairs and registrations, utility bills and rent expenses, and applications come in almost daily for these types of needs. We've also initiated a foster care closet under Project Grace, which is a loan closet for foster care families. Sometimes when there is a child placed in a foster home, it happens very suddenly uh, and without much warning. Uh, Living where we do, it can be difficult to prepare uh, fully with barely any notice. The foster care closet allows people to donate items that will be loaned out to foster care families for these situations until they have time to adjust accordingly. On a similar note, we've also begun a backpack program for the foster care children. Again, in some situations, placement can be uh, almost immediate, and some, some of these children don't have time even to go home and collect a few personal belongings. With the backpack program, we have begun collecting donated backpacks and filling them with basic necessities and a few personal items um, that kids can have to call their own. We are working with the county directly with this ministry, so when there is a child place, the county has access to whatever bags they need. 
To have just a backpack with a few things uh, to call their own in a new home, new environment, um, with a new family after their world has been turned upside down can make a, a huge difference to these kids. We've also begun our Daily Bread initiative in cooperation with Fillmore Central School. Roughly 30% of Fillmore students identified by the school do not have sufficient amounts of food when they go home for extended weekends or breaks. Since November, we have filled and sent into the school 360 brown bags filled with food that can help sustain students through these breaks or long weekends. And speaking of food, the food pantry is also a very active ministry that falls under Partners at Home. In the past month, we've helped more than 12 families and have had four more requests sent in for assistance. People make use of the food pantry for a variety of reasons, some having long, long-term financial problems, but some are just folks in our community who need a little extra help in a, in a given month. The food pantry is a very active part of this, this ministry, Partners at Home. The Benevolent Fund also falls under Partners at Home. This fund aids our ability to be active in some of these different areas. Without a benevolent fund, um, Project Raise and Partners at Home would not exist. Um, in John 13, just before Jesus goes to the cross, he says to his disciples, Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Our goal as the Partners at Home Committee is to help our church be this kind of love to each other and to the community around us. As you see, there's lots to do, and there's a lot more um, that we want to do that we're not able to do at this time. But with your help, uh, hopefully we can continue to grow as a committee and to continue to care for someone who may be sitting right next to you this morning. Uh, if you're interested in becoming involved, uh, Partners at Home contact information is available in the bulletin. We'd love to have you join us. Thank you. As you can see, uh, our mission outreach of this church begins at home. And for those who were privileged to be in the community room last hour, it extends up to Buffalo and in our region and around the world. So uh, to me, mission is integrated into every Sunday, every uh, all days of the year, but today is a special Sunday. Just want to remind folks that next week we'll be collecting our final installment of the Matthew 8.20 Initiative for Refugees. Trust you've been reading in the little booklets, and um, those are available online, so if you haven't been, you can still go back to them, but next Sunday is that Sunday. I just want to take a moment in the honor of introducing our speaker today for later in the service. Um, for many of you, no necess not necessary to have an introduction. It's Carolyn Payne Miller, very familiar, her whole life associated with this community, with the academy, with the college, and with this church. And for others, somebody very new, so we're glad you're getting to know her. John, her husband, and Carolyn have served in Southeast Asia with Wycliffe Bible Translators and with SIL, she'll explain that, SIL, since the 1960s, a little before, actually. They've been involved with hands-on, grassroots Bible translation in Vietnam and other places and uh, other language groups and also served as major team leaders and international leaders, as so many from Houghton College have done. But they're unique. Uh, they continue to live in Houghton and assist in translation still going on in Southeast Asia, so they're not finished yet. And we're so glad and so privileged as a 
church to all these years to have supported them and to continue to support them. We look forward to what she has to say about God's work in the past, but mainly God's work in the future, partnering with God in sharing the good news. God bless you. Welcome, Carolyn. Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your... Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seeds for the flower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Please stand for the doxology if you're able as the ushers come forward to receive the offering. Father, we lift up this offering to you. We pray that you would give us generous hearts to know that it is more blessed to give than to receive. We pray that, Lord, every gift that is given to you this morning would be used to further your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Thank you so much. Our world is, and our lives are so much richer when we share the music of our various cultures. And, and uh, it's, it's exciting to see that in all the different generations and people singing. And I was watching your faces as you were, can some of you even singing along with them? It's, it's, it's great. And we give thanks to God for the gift of music. I want to invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. Almighty God, you've created all people. We acknowledge that we do not see, as you do, people who are different from us. We confess that we struggle with bias and prejudice toward people whose skin color is different from ours, whose nationality is different from ours, whose language is different from ours, whose perspective about life is different from ours. Forgive us for our sin of arrogance that blinds us to the unique blessing of others. Open our eyes to see each other as you see. Fill us with joy and gratitude for all of the different ways in which you create us and love us. Through Christ. Amen. Father, we want to thank you today for the gift of your spirit, your power, your grace in this world among all people. People from different places, different customs, different ideologies. We give you thanks today because you are at work everywhere in this world. We look forward to that day when when all people, people from all the nations and tribes and languages will gather in the new heaven and the new earth and together we will all worship you. And in preparation for that day, we want to give you thanks for helping us to be people and giving us the privilege of being people who are agents of healing and reconciliation and grace in this world among all people. We thank you for people who 
who hear your call and go to serve in places that are not home to them. We thank you for John and Carolyn Miller, for their many years of service in Southeast Asia, for their work with Wycliffe Bible Translators and helping the Brew people and others to have their word, your word, in their heart language. We pray that you continue to bless their ministry and their lives. We pray for our brothers and sisters who worship and live in, in continual opposition and persecution. And we thank you for the church that, as Jesus has said, will continue to stand even in the midst of all the opposition. We thank you for the ministry of Open Doors, working particularly in Syria among among wives and mothers and giving them grace to be a witness for you and to see you at work in their lives. And we pray you would continue to bless them and protect them. Father, we pray for the needs of our world. We think of refugees who are forced from their homes. We ask that you would bring peace to those places that they would be able to return in safety, reestablish their lives. And as they are away, protect them, watch over them. We pray, Father, that that you will pour out your spirit upon our nation and the leaders of our nation and all the various levels of government. That every leader would have a mind and a heart for you and to see the world, to see people the way you do. And to make decisions in a way that honors you, brings glory to you. Father, we pray that, that you will help us as a nation in this time that, that feels very divisive. And we pray that through your spirit and through the ministry of your people, the church, we would sense a spirit of unity in Christ. Father, we pray for the needs that we represent here today and the needs around us. We thank you for giving us the privilege as a church to minister to the needs of people around us. And as Andrew was helping us understand, there are many ways in which we are involved and can be. Help us to continue to be a church that reaches out across the globe and across the street and into the next community and town and county. Father, we pray for those who are grieving today and ask that you would bring peace and comfort and help in the midst of hurt and heartache and pain. We pray for all who are suffering illness and issues of of these physical bodies We pray that you would bring healing in powerful ways on each one. We thank you, Father, for caring about every person in this world. Every person. May our lives reflect your heart to each other and to the world. And we offer this prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Following the scripture reading, the children are dismissed. Uh, this morning's New Testament scripture reading will be from 2 Corinthians verses, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and verses 16 through 18. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways and do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we preach... 
For what we preach is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The word of the Lord. This morning, that 
I heard that Swahili song now three times, and I could listen. It gets better every time, I think. I owe a great debt to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. When I was a child, my parents brought us every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening, and we sat right over there in the front seat. My parents, I think, had the idea that children listen better or pay better attention if they're up front. At least that's the way it seemed to work out. All through my years of schooling at the little two-room village school here in Houghton, and Houghton Academy, Houghton College. This was my church home. When I left for Vietnam to marry John, this church sent me out. And when we came back, after being released from prison, this church welcomed us back. They threw a parade. After that, we served in the Philippines, Malaysia, Laos, Thailand, and the people of Houghton prayed for us and supported us financially. There's no way I can adequately express my thanks and my appreciation to this church. Our service, as Paul said, has taken us has been with Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Summer Institute of Linguistics, two organizations that have worked closely together over the past 75 years. Wycliffe Global Alliance, of which Wycliffe U.S. is a member, is a network of organizations from in many countries that recruit people and help them to raise support, prayer support and finances for doing Bible translation. SIL is an organization of more than 5,500 people coming from over 60 countries that trains and administers these people as they serve in other countries in language development, in multilingual education, and Bible translation. SIL has conducted linguistic analysis in more than 2,500 languages spoken by 1.7 billion people in nearly 100 countries. I just got that off the website. Our own roles in the organization have been varied, and they've taken us to many parts of the world. We've been involved in language learning and hands-on translation, in teacher training, in preparation of educational materials, doing language survey, doing university teaching, writing technical linguistic articles, developing dictionaries, and serving as administrators and also, as Paul said, traveling internationally as part of the International Board of Directors. All of this has been with the aim of serving language communities that are without the word of God in their own mother tongue. During the more than 55 years we've been working, we've seen immense changes in the areas where we work as well as in our own country in respect to cross-cultural Christian ministry. I'd like to reflect on just a few of these 
There have been changes in transportation, travel, communication. These have made the world a much smaller place. When John left for Vietnam in 1959 by freighter, the trip took more than a month. I joined him two years later, but it took me several days by plane, going first to the West Coast, and then Honolulu, and then Guam, and then finally Saigon. The only voice communication we had with each other over those two years was one phone call when John booked a call at the main Saigon post office, making sure that I would be at home and by the phone in Houghton. And on that day, we celebrated our engagement. It took over two weeks to get a letter. And it wasn't even considered a possibility that John would come back for the wedding or that I would, or that our families would go there. The cost was just prohibitive. And so I went with my wedding dress, my suitcase, actually my grandmother's wedding dress, and we were married a month after I arrived. Over the years, we've seen this change. When we moved out of our Bangkok apartment last year, our neighbors showed me a scrap of paper that we had given them in 2008, I think it was, to indicate where we would be over the next three months. We had planned travel to Indonesia, Dallas, Texas, Nairobi, Manila, and Mumbai, as well as travel to places within Thailand. Similarly, when our grandson was married in California last summer, his parents and sister, the Dodies, booked a ticket to come back for the wedding. Pretty reasonable. Um, flights are not just as big an event now as they used to be. So they were able to come back for the wedding. Email, Skype, instant messaging, host of other options make communication possible almost anywhere in the world. I regularly get text messages from somebody in southern Laos, a, a Katang friend who's well, asked me to pray for somebody who's very ill or somebody who may be um, troubled with demon possession that he's been asked to pray for. Last Sunday morning, as we were getting ready for church, I got a smartphone message from Sabah, Malaysia. A friend, a Karazan friend, was letting us know that now a voice recording of the Karazan New Testament is online. She was so excited. That's, we were excited too. That's a translation that we worked on. The Brew New Testament also is available in voice recording and in print online. And soon, the whole Bible in Brew will be on smartphones all over Vietnam and Laos. Changes in the technology have been impressive, too. In 1962, when we moved into a brew village in the mountains near the 17th parallel, separating South Vietnam from the communist north, few foreigners lived in that area. Very few brew people knew Vietnamese, let alone English. I don't think anybody spoke English. There was no school in the village where we lived. Our house was 
bamboo and thatch up off the ground. Our neighbors were all subsistence rice farmers. Our wind-up tape recorder, reel-to-reel tape recorder, was a huge attraction because it could play brew music and brew stories that we had recorded. So people showed up every night wanting to hear these, this brew music. Our portable typewriter had been adapted to be able to type Vietnamese, but for the brew language, there was no written form. When we eventually purchased a, a gas refrigerator, uh, we were able to keep food a little longer and enjoy iced drinks. I remember one time after a noon meal in which we'd had cold water, we threw the ice cubes out on the ground outside of our house and went back to work. Shortly, we heard a neighbor calling out to our language helper, Carlu, Carlu, come quick. We rushed to the window, wondering what emergency there was, and saw him holding one of the discarded ice cubes between two sticks. It bites, he says, it bites. <laughs> this new technology was a source of amazement to our brew friends and neighbors. They could never understand how a putting a fire under that metal box made things in it get cold. I confess, I don't know how it does either, but we enjoy the cold. The, um, when we then later moved to Malaysia, to Sabah, we lived still, we lived there in a small wooden house up on stilts, uh, beside a river at the end of a long suspension bridge. The water buffalo would rest under our house because it was, it was shade there, it was cool. But in the house, we actually had electricity and running water. Uh, most of our neighbors were rice farmers, but our next door neighbor worked as a plumber in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in the nearby city. We, at that point, had computers and photocopiers and cassette recorders to use in our work. Big advance. But this past year, when we left Thailand to come back to the U.S., we were working in a row of four-story cement buildings with high-speed internet, where people from neighboring countries could come and work on their development of their own languages. Computer technology had produced tools for editing and sharing materials, for checking translation, for preparing textbooks, and adapting materials from one language to another, thus extending the work done in one language to another closely related one. With all these changes, in travel and communication and technology, language communities in many parts of the world have become much less isolated. The search for better jobs has produced increased urbanization, bilingualism, 
language shift. Some linguists have predicted that as many as a third of the world's languages are in danger of extinction. I question that number, having lived with a few of these communities, but certainly the world has changed for language communities. You might ask, is it necessary then to translate the Bible into these languages, to the mother tongues of these groups? Why can't they just learn the national language or English? But when you've lived there among some of these marginal groups, you realize that only a very small number actually speak the national language, or let alone languages of wider communication. And even for those who do, nothing speaks to them, to their heart, like their own language. I recall sitting in a Karazan translation committee uh, session in Sabah, Malaysia. Several of the committee members were school teachers and knew both Malay and, to some extent, English. The man reading, reading aloud, was a school principal, a catechist in the church, and a translator for Radio Malaysia into Karazan. We were checking the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And as Uncle Peter was reading Jesus' teaching on the treatment of enemies, I heard one of the teachers sitting beside me say to the other, it's not easy to be a Christian, you know? Then as he read further and got to the passage on divorce, he stopped. And he looked over at the translator and said, is that what it says? She said, I think so. Then he looked at me, who was sitting across the table and following along in the Greek text, and said, is that what it says? And I said, I think so. Is there a problem? He went back and read it again. And then he said to the only single man on the committee, you better be careful who you marry. <laughs> you see, I'm sure he had read this before in English and probably in Bahasa Malaysia. But somehow, when he read it in his own language, it was personal. It was real. Though the changes in, in travel, communication, technology have, I think, made the work much easier, there have been other changes that have made the, the work more difficult, especially for those wanting to do Christian ministry. Tourists are generally welcome anywhere in the world, as long as they have money and they're willing to spend it there. But for people who want to go and live, it's sometimes a different story. Increasingly, I think, nationalism and anti-Christian pressure has made it difficult to get visas to work in some of these places. You may be required to perform a, a, a service that the government sees as valuable in order to buy you access to the country, in order to get to the, into the country, and that takes a lot of time. You're generally expected also to train somebody to take your place. You can come for a year or two, but then you train somebody else and you go back home. This isn't easy to do when you're working with a 
minority group who has very little education. Within the American church, too, I think there have been changes that have made, made it difficult for people wanting to serve in mission. At a recent, on a recent visit to the Wycliffe headquarters in Orlando, Florida, we were told that few churches will allow returning missionaries or those wanting to go with a mission organization to speak to the whole church, as I'm doing here in Houghton. This is an unusual church. Generally, five or ten minutes, a couple times a year, may be given, but not very much. And yet, at the same time, the rising cost of living in many places puts the, the task of getting adequate support uh, much at a much higher level, especially for a growing family. Short-term missions has, in many cases, become the norm. Caught up in the excitement of sending their own young people out for a missions trip, many churches are uninterested in supporting those that are willing to or wanting to go into missions on a longer term. But you can't learn a language, and you can't engage in language development or translation on a two-week mission trip. just can't be done. I have learned that a fairly large percentage, though, of people who are applying to Wycliffe as career, career missionaries now have had previous missions trip experience. So it could be that these young people are at least getting a taste of what, what it's like and about their own uh, willingness to be a part of the, that movement. Although there have been a lot of things that have changed, some things haven't changed. The need hasn't changed. According to the latest statistics from Wycliffe, there are still 1,421 minority language groups that are still without any scriptures. Many, if not all of these, are minorities, and they're, they're groups that are marginalized uh, because of their language or because of their race. Because of this, they're unable to take advantage of the educational opportunities and the uh, economic opportunities in the countries where they live. These groups are generally at the bottom of the ladder, sociolinguistically or socioculturally, as well as in terms of a sense of their own dignity and worth. They're constantly told that they are not as good as others and their languages are useless. These, I think, are truly the least of these with whom Jesus asked his disciples to share their resources. The command hasn't changed. The words of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 are still as valid today as they were when the Lord Jesus spoke them. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and the word in Greek is ethne, or ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But how can people obey if they don't know or understand what Jesus has commanded? The opposition hasn't changed. 
Though we may feel it more keenly, I think, in our own society now, opposition has always been there to people who want to serve the Lord. It always will be. Jesus said in John 15, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He also told the disciples, I've told you this, these things so that you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Materialism, nationalism, religious pluralism, militant anti-Christian opposition, these are still there, and they're still, still devices that Satan uses to stop the spread of the word. Still, I think that the response to the call hasn't changed. As I traveled around the world to many of the countries where SIL is working, I was continually impressed by the caliber of people that God is calling and sending out around the world to do his work. It's quite amazing. Some of them come from Houghton College. These are people who are aware of changes, but willing to be flexible. They've committed themselves to the hard work of learning another language and adapt, adapting to another culture, and these have not changed. But they work in teams that are increasingly cross-cultural. So they have to learn to adapt not only to the culture where they're going, but also to the culture of all the people that are on their team. In the center where we worked in Thailand, it wasn't a large team, but we had people from Wycliffe US, Wycliffe Netherlands, Wycliffe Canada, Wycliffe Thailand, Wycliffe Singapore, as well as from the various language groups that we were serving. This involves quite a bit of cultural adaptation. The people that God has called are those who have committed to building relationships and serving governments, local institutions, majority and minority language groups. They're people who are willing to be accountable both to the field administration and to the supporting constituency at home. And sometimes that's not an easy balance. They operate with transparency and honesty knowing that in this small world, what they say in their newsletters or on social media may be read by the people they work with as well as by people who are opposed to their work. They're willing to take up jobs that they wouldn't prefer to take in order to accomplish their ministry. They're willing to work with people from other organizations, other sending countries. They're people who are persistent and willing to hang in there when it seems like doors are closing all around them. And it does seem in this world that constantly this happens. You think you will do this and something happens and you have to do that. And uh, people who are in ministry have to somehow be willing to flex. But finally, and most importantly, the power of God's word to change lives has not changed. We read from Isaiah, where God says in his word, 
that I will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. He's still doing that. When we prepared to go to the brew people, I sometimes wondered, how could we ever convince people who never heard of the Bible and knew nothing at all about the Christian faith that somehow the Bible was important to them and it was, in fact, the Word of God? But we learned, as Paul did when he visited Thessalonica, that this was not something we needed to worry about, and it wasn't even part of our job. God's Spirit took the word, translated into the brew language, and produced life and faith in those who heard it. We saw this happen in the brew church that continues to grow numerically and spiritually despite hardship and difficulties that they face on a daily basis. God's word is still living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Several years ago, we had opportunity to go back after 43 years to visit the village in Vietnam where we had first started our work. It was only a short time. It was a two-day visit. had to be approved by the Vietnamese security police. And we were carefully watched the whole time we were there. The New Testament had been available in Brew for 30 years at that point, And the Brew Bible was in the final stages of, of preparation. We stayed in a hotel in the district center. There weren't any hotels there when we lived there, but there's a fairly large hotel now in the district center. The next day, we went to the village and uh, walked up the hill into the village where they had a preschool for small children, then to the church where people had gathered to meet us. It was packed. I don't know how many people were there, but it was certainly an emotional meeting. Later, they took us back to the district center to a Vietnamese church where a Vietnamese pastor had invited uh, church leaders from about 23 brew villages to come and meet with us. It was amazing to hear how God had worked. These were all small house churches, but how God had worked in all of these and other villages beyond that uh, to bring people to himself. Smartphones were very much in evidence, and everybody wanted their picture taken with us. A few months before we returned to the U.S. this past spring, I was standing near the coffee pot at the Language Center in Northeast Thailand. There are a number of brew people who serve on the staff there now. And I was standing, I listened as two of our brew co-workers were talking to each other, and they were discussing what it had meant that we had come to the brew they, the one was, they were, they were both, one was a son and the other a grandson of people we had worked very closely with uh, before we had to leave Vietnam at the time of the communist takeover. One was, one was, had come, the pastor had come over to help John with the work, with working on a brew dictionary. The other was a university graduate and he was involved in translation into a language closely related to his own. 
they were talking about what it meant not just to the believers, but to their whole people group, that they now had a language that they were recognized as having a written language. They said it had made a big difference, not just to the believers, but to all of the Brew people to, in terms of their, their own sense of worth. And then they said having God's word in their language has meant that there are so many believers, so many believers now in, in Brew villages that the government has pretty much given up trying to eradicate it and has had to, has had to acknowledge that the Christian faith is in fact a part of the Brew cultural tradition. I stood in the background and marveled that God had given us the privilege of seeing how he has caused his word to be fruitful in the lives of the Brew Church. During the time we were in prison in Vietnam, interrogators were always trying to figure out who had sent us and what our motivation was. And uh, I remember one session where I was actually shared with the interrogator that I believed in God and I believed that the Bible was God's word. And because I believed that, I felt I had a responsibility to share it with others. He said, well, yeah, you believe, because you don't know if there's a God or not, but you believe. And I agreed that this was, in fact, true. And then he said, because you believe, you've come and you've taught the brew people about God. And some of them have believed. They don't know if he exists, but they believed. And I agreed. They'll remember you, he went on. Every time they see their language in writing, they'll remember you. And every time they read the brew scripture, they'll remember you. At first I thought, is he trying to encourage me? But then I realized that he was pointing out my crime. When he continued, not only will these people remember you, they'll tell their children about you, and their children will tell their children, and it'll be many years before the effects of what you have done will be able to be undone. I was actually kind of shaken. I went back to the room, and I told John what he had said. And John's response was, well, praise the Lord. He's right, you know. That's a pretty, pretty good testimony to the effectiveness of our work. But at that time, we little expected that God would give us the privilege of meeting and actually working with some of our spiritual grandchildren. Some time ago, a brew friend wrote to us and to you, who have been our supporters, saying, now the people who are in the group of Jesus Christ our Lord. Every one of them knows this. If you drink water, you remember the person who dug the well. If you eat fruit, you remember the person who planted the tree. In this same way, we never forget the labor that you, our brothers and sisters, expended pouring out your lives for the souls of the brew. But I don't know what we can do to repay this very great labor. We can only bow before the Lord in thanks and pray great blessings from the Lord to be poured out on you, our brothers and sisters.
This is the thanks that goes to you because you are part of the team. And I can't think of any more fulfilling way to invest one's life than in giving a group of people God's word in their own language.
thank Carolyn for sharing in all three services today and appreciate her word to us. And it's exciting to hear not only what God has done, but what he continues to do. Now receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.